God, as that song says, who, who are we that the highest King would welcome me? Who, who are we when we look to You in Your presence? We, again, we, we praise You that because of what Jesus has done, with, without Jesus, we, we are not good enough. We are nothing. We are not worthy. But because of what Jesus did on that cross, we can come before You as Your children and we can call You Father. So God, we just praise you this morning. I just continue to pray that as we uh, continue our worship service that we will just remember the simple fact that, that you love us, that you sent your son Jesus to come and to die for us. So Father, I just continue to pray that you, you bless our service, that it, it brings you glory and brings you honor. And in your name we pray, amen. All right, well, good morning again, New Village Church. Like, like I keep saying, it is... It's amazing to just see everybody. For the longest time, it seemed like the norm was looking at that camera or looking at the sun reflect off of windshields out in the parking lot and kind of get a little bit blinded by that. Uh, but man, it is, it is nice to see everybody. And again, the simple blessing of coming together as a body, as, as, as the church, is just, for me, it's, it's something I've been taking for granted for a long time. So... Welcome, good morning. If you have your Bibles, could you turn to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10. I'm excited that I get another week to just share what God's been putting on my heart as I've been preparing uh, this morning. And Let me just move this out of the way. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be continuing through his gospel. Actually, I'll put it over here. And as you're turning there, maybe, maybe you're there already, but as you're turning there, I want to just share a little bit of some facts with you. All right, in, in 1952, there was a man named Art Linkletter, and he hosted a show called Art Linkletter's House Party. It aired from 1952 to 1969. Maybe some of you might have seen this show before, uh, or this could just be brand new news to you. Uh, it, it ran from 1952 to 1969, and when it completed its run in 1969, it was the longest-running daytime variety show on TV. The show itself was made up of these different segments, uh, and, and, and interestingly enough, Art, the host, the creator of the show, he never used a script, nor did he ever rehearse anything. He was just blessed with that gift of thinking quick on his feet. Um, and, and probably the, the, the show's best-remembered segment, and you might know this, was called Kids Say the Darndest Things. Maybe you've heard of this before. And actually, in 1998 to the year 2000, it was turned into a TV show on its own, a standalone show, Kids Say the Darndest Things. And I remember just kind of watching some of these clips when I was younger, and I, I took some time this week uh, to, to watch some clips again, to just be refreshed in what's going on. So if you don't know what this is, and you're like, what the heck is he talking about? Uh, the segment involved Art asking several 5-year-old to 10-year-old kids just random questions, as simple as, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or, hey, what did your parents say not to say on national TV? So again, what made the show hysterical was just Art's interaction with the kids. And I'm just going to share two funny moments I found on YouTube and again, it, they might miss, it might not be funny because I'm not art. He, it's just known for his, his facial expressions and his interaction with the kids, it's hysterical. So if you have some time, I recommend just watching a few clips, it's hysterical. So one, one funny moment, Art interviewed a young boy 
and he asked them, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the boy responded with, I want to be a bus driver or a pilot, right? So that wasn't really even the funny part yet, but you could just see those are kind of two extreme things on a scale of being a driver. You're either on the ground or in the air. So again, Art just goes a little further and says, all right, imagine you're flying a big airplane and all four engines just suddenly stop working. You know, what do you do? Which, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big question to ask a five-year-old boy. So he, he took a moment to, th to think, and you can kind of see his brain working. He's looking around. All of a sudden, he puts his hands together. He bows his head, and he says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And just seeing the minds of the kids, like he just starts praying. Uh, again, another funny story real quick. Um, he asked another kid, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the kid said, I want to be a famous actor. I want to be on TV. So then Art said, hey, can I test your acting abilities? And the boy said, yeah, sure. So Art said to the boy, he said, I want you to say Art Linkletter like you're mad. So the boy took a moment, he composed himself, he made this angry, disgusted face, and he said, Art Linkletter like you're mad. So again, just... The minds of children, what a wonderful thing. You never know what to expect from them. And again, you might be asking, why is David bringing this up? Well, if you're in Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at a story in which Jesus encounters children. This passage is easily overlooked, I believe, because of its length. It's only a few verses long. However, it tells us something really important about the kingdom of God. And when you're reading through the Gospels, if Jesus is telling you something about the kingdom of God, or if he's speaking about the kingdom of God, I feel like those are the ones you should pay extra attention to, and you should probably slow down a little bit and focus on, on what Jesus is talking about. So Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, that's where we'll be this morning. This short story is also recorded in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel as well. And earlier in this chapter, in Mark chapter 10, it starts off with a large crowd gathering. They come before Jesus, and the Pharisees actually ask Jesus a question about the law. They're trying to entrap Jesus, and specifically they ask him about divorce and marriage. So Jesus, after responding to their question with the scripture, he jumped, we kind of jump right into the story. So again, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, let's read it together. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So this morning, I just want to tell you up front, here's what, I'm, here's what I'm going to do. The first half of my sermon, we're going to focus on what is going on. Looking at these few verses, what's the context? Why is Jesus saying what he's saying? And then the other half are a few applications or a few spiritual or biblical truths that we can glean from these couple of verses. So the first half, you know, what is going on here in Mark chapter 10 in these few verses? We see that parents are bringing their children to Jesus that they might receive this sort of blessing from him. In Luke's gospel, he actually gets a little bit more specific with his wording, and he identifies these children as infants. So in both Matthew and Luke, the word for, for child is more of a vague, like six or seven-year-old kids and lower and younger. But Luke gets more specific and says these are infants, anywhere from, from newborn babies to babies that are still nursing. So babies. 
And again, throughout the Old Testament, we see that blessings were given to children. That's a common thing that you see throughout Israel's history. And in Jewish culture and in Jesus' day, children were often brought to a synagogue to receive a blessing. The father would bring the child to, a, to the elder of the synagogue, and they would both kind of lay hands on the child and pray and, and, and give this child a sort of blessing. And interestingly enough, there's still a common prayer blessing that is used today in Jewish culture, and it goes something like this. Usually they say, God, we pray for this child to grow up famous in the law, to be faithful in marriage, and to be abundant in good works. So three things. God, grow up to be famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and be abundant in good works. So again, looking at these parents in the story that are coming to Jesus, there's no description of them. We don't know their salvation. We don't know if they believed Jesus to be the Messiah. We don't know if they were like good Jewish families. We don't know their standings. But we do know one thing about them. They were concerned about their children's future. And more specifically, they're concerned about the salvation of their children. To grow up famous in the law, you know, that, that first thing in the blessing, it means to, to know the law and to follow it. To be obedient, to be morally righteous in the law. And looking at this prayer, this blessing, it really points to a salvation based on works. A salvation based on moral obedience to the law and being self-righteous. And that's what the Pharisees taught in the culture. They believed that they would please God, that they would enter God's kingdom based on their own merit, that when they would die, God would say, you know what, hey, you did a great job, you're in, you followed the law, you guys were great. That's what the Pharisees taught and believed. Also, as much as children were loved and wanted in that society, when it came to discussions about the kingdom of God, when it came to discussions of salvation, they were deemed not viable in those discussions. Since children don't know the law and they can't follow the law because they don't know it, they were seen as irrelevant to spiritual, eternal, and kingdom conversations in that culture. Again, babies could do nothing to earn their way to heaven. We even see that this belief leaked into, the, the, into Jesus' disciples as well. And I say that because look how they responded in verse 13. In Mark 10, verse 13, he says, And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples, what? Rebuked them. And that word rebuke, it means to correct a wrong, to reprimand, or to criticize harshly. So rebuke means that you are trying to correct something that someone is doing that's wrong. So what the disciples' behavior showed by them rebuking these parents, by, by having them bring their children to Jesus, they were saying that Jesus has no time for these children. The parents who are bringing their children to Jesus, they're, they're being intrusive and they're interrupting Jesus from more important things. That's what the disciples were thinking. The disciples also believed that it was, it was not appropriate for Jesus to stop his ministry, stop what he was doing, and take a break to focus on these children. The disciples, they protested the parents' actions of them bringing their children to Jesus. Why? Because I think they thought the same thing as society. Children, what Jesus is doing is more important than these children. You know, these children, they, they don't understand the kingdom of God, so, so leave Jesus alone. Don't bother him. And I love that we see Jesus' response. We don't have to guess what it is. We, we find out what it is. In verse 14, we read, But when Jesus saw it. So Jesus doesn't 
perceive in their hearts that this is how they're feeling. He doesn't hear this from another person. He's witnessing what his disciples are doing. He's, he's seeing it. He's next to them. And it says, He was indignant and said, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He became indignant. He became angry. Now the word indignant, it literally means anger brought about by something unjust. And it's not an insignificant word. The word indignant is used a handful of times in the Bible. So again, stopping the children from coming to Jesus made him indignant. It made him angry. It was a righteous, holy type of anger that Jesus was feeling. And I love how, how Luke actually words it in his gospel in this story. He writes that Jesus calls the children over to him. The, the word that Luke uses for call is summoned. So Jesus summons the children and says, no, 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 you come. That's what it's literally translated as. So he stops what he's doing and he says, you come to me. So again, we see that Jesus corrects his disciples' actions. He corrects his disciples from the rebuking of the parents that, that they're, or I should say from the rebuke that, he's, that they're giving to the parents. He allows the children to come to him. He tells them, hey, don't forbid the children from coming. Do not stop them from coming to me. Again, we just see how, how Jewish society was leaking into the disciples' minds. Again, these children are not important to Jesus. That's what they truly believed. Jesus is too worthy for them. Leave him alone. And what's really surprising, I don't know if you do this as well, but sometimes when I read the Bible, especially when I read about Israel in the Old Testament, I'm like, man, how could the nation of Israel be so stupid? I'm just being honest. Like, even in the whole book of Judges is Israel's great with God, Israel sins against God, Israel gets punished, Israel is then crying out, God, why is this happening? Help us. God delivers them using a judge, and then they're good with God, and then Israel sins against God, and it's called the Judges Cycle. And you read it over and over again in the book of Judges. Constantly, Israel is, is messing up, and you're like, okay, how are they that stupid? Why don't they get it? And the same thing, sometimes I read that when I'm, when I'm reading about the disciples, and I'm like, man, how do, they, how do they question Jesus based on what they just saw or heard? How are they reacting this way? And interestingly enough, if you turn a page to Mark chapter 9, this isn't the first time that Jesus is encountering children. It's not the first time in his ministry that he's interacting with kids. Last week, Paul Nelson went through the transfiguration and he looked at how Peter, James, and John, they saw some amazing things on that mountain. And I, could, I, I just believe they kind of came, they had to have come down from that mountain on a sort of spiritual high, like, oh my gosh, we've just saw supernatural, amazing, glorifying things on that mountain. And then in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 to 37, how quickly things turn around for them. So a few days after this experience, we read this in Mark 9, 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms. And he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
So again, in verse 36, we see Jesus picks up a child, holds him in his hands, and uses this child as an object lesson for the disciples to see something. And how quickly they forget when they're now stopping the children from coming to Jesus a few verses later in Mark chapter 10. So again, Jesus says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And I don't know if you caught that, but Jesus took the children in his arms. He, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. And I'm just thinking, what a powerful image that would have been for the crowd watching, for the disciples to see, for the Pharisees to see, for the parents to see. Jesus, by his actions, is saying this, the kingdom of God, my kingdom, is for those such as these children. There is room for them in my kingdom. So again, now we're going to kind of transition to a few applications or a few things that we can glean from these few verses here. The first is this, we learn something about God's kingdom. In verse 14, Jesus tells us who belongs to his kingdom and who does not receive it. And surprisingly, it involves being like these children coming to receive a blessing from Jesus. The verse does not say this, all right? It does not say, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to them belongs the kingdom of God. But rather, it says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And there's a difference there. So if he's saying, for them belongs the kingdom, what Jesus is then implying is, these kids only. These kids are special and only them right here receive the kingdom. But when he uses this phrase, for to such, he's talking about the bigger category to which these children belong to. Not specifically these children that are in front of him. Remember earlier that the children were deemed irrelevant when it came to talk about the kingdom of God because they couldn't earn their way to it. This category of people that Jesus is referring to are the broken, the humble, the weak. Even It includes the ones who know they're not righteous. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he loved to turn things upside down. And I remember every time I, I, I almost see a sermon series on the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, it's always called something about like the upside-down kingdom because what Jesus is saying is he's taking a list of people and characteristics that if you were a king or if you were thinking earthly things, they would not be strong-suited people that you'd want in your kingdom. So I'll, just, I'll explain that real quick. He says things like, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Sometimes I'm like, well, what? Like, <laughs> that, that's weird. The second thing Jesus also says, if you want to be great, you have to be the least. If you want to be great, you've got to be the servant to everyone. In the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, the upside-down kingdom, as most people title that sermon series, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the, the persecuted. For theirs is the what? The kingdom. The kingdom. So throughout Jesus' ministry, he's, he's turning things upside down. He's turning culture upside down on who is worthy for the kingdom and who receives the kingdom of God. If you have your Bibles, if you could turn over to Luke chapter 18. So Luke chapter 18, verse 9. 
Luke 18, verse 9. We're going to be reading a parable real quick that Jesus shares with the Pharisees after they question him about the kingdom of God. So Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And as we read this, you're probably going to be like, oh, I've heard this before. It's pretty well known. All right, here we go. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Pause. We, we know who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the self-righteous. He's speaking to the Pharisees. And we'll continue. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, in this story, Jesus is making a point to the Pharisees. He is not interested in the proud. He's not interested in the arrogant, those who are self-righteous. They have no place in his kingdom because they have no need of a savior. If you think about the cross, the cross shows us that we're not good enough for God, that we need somebody to die to pay the debt on our behalf so that we can be made right with God. And the Pharisees, again, by, by being self-righteous, they're saying, we don't, we, don't need, we don't need you, Jesus. We don't need a Savior. We're, we're good enough. We're okay. If you're still looking at Luke's Gospel, the story after this, is what? It's, it's, it's let the children come to me. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Jesus is making a point to the crowd. The humble tax collector, the children in this story, they're examples of those who belong to God's kingdom. People such as those. So number one, we learn something about the kingdom of God from these few verses today. Number two, Jesus is crushing the Jewish view of salvation. He's, he's leveling it. He's destroying it. The Pharisees over and over again taught and practiced obedience to the law, being an upright moral person was good enough to gain favor with God, to be part of his kingdom. We see them always challenging Jesus with what? With the law, with the commandments, with their traditions. And if you're still in Luke, if you're still in this section that we, that we just read, immediately after uh, the story of the children. So it goes, the Pharisee, the tax collector, let the children come to me. And then immediately after that story is the young rich ruler. And the young rich ruler takes place right after the let the, let the children come to me in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel as well. So again, I'm not going to go through the young rich ruler, but it's important to look at because again, it's, it's telling us something. We learn from the story of the young rich ruler that uh, being rich having a sense of authority in the culture, and even claiming to be righteous, right? The young rich ruler claims to be perfect. I've kept all of those since my youth. I haven't broken any rules. It's not enough to gain eternal life because that's the young rich ruler's question. Jesus, how do I get into your kingdom? How do I get eternal life? The man walks away from Jesus sad because Jesus reveals the idol, which is this man's heart. The idol in his heart was 
possessions, was his wealth, was his money. And this encounter, it made the disciples question Jesus. If you want to stay in Luke and look towards the end of the Young Rich Ruler story, or if you want to turn back to Mark, I know we're doing a lot of flipping back and forth, but in Mark chapter 10, verses 24 to 26, towards the end of the, of the Young Rich Ruler story, it says this, they, they ask, Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were exceedingly astonished. And they said to Jesus, Then who can be saved? And I, I think that's a pretty valid question. The disciples are seeing what's going on. They're listening to Jesus. If the Pharisees don't belong to God's kingdom, nor does this young rich ruler, and these are the two most self-righteous, good, morally people that, that we know, then who the heck is good enough for God? How, how do we, Jesus, what must we do? How do we, who's good enough for you? And verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And I think we've all heard that verse before. For all things are possible with God. Maybe you have it like on your wall at your house, or maybe a magnet on your fridge, a bumper sticker. Maybe you've prayed it before, before a big test or a big project. You're like, all right, God, I really didn't study or prepare for this, but I know, hey, all things are possible with you. You're a miracle worker. I got this because I know you got me. Maybe, maybe you, you think of it that way, or maybe you're late to church, and you're like, God, all things are possible with you. Please give me all these green lights. I need them. So again, this is a verse that's easily taken out of context. And I'm not going to lie, I've done it myself. I've used this to kind of fit the mold that, that God can do anything he wants. But really what this verse is specifically talking to is salvation. Right? The context of the story. Who can be saved? Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God it's possible. So again, without God it's impossible to be a part of his kingdom. Only because of Jesus is it possible. And this points directly to the cross where Christ died. It's only because of Jesus, his amazing, undeserved, perfect grace that we are saved. Not anything that we have done. And again, looking back to these key verses today, this story of children and them coming to Jesus, it's perfectly placed in Luke between these two other salvation or kingdom stories. The Pharisee and the tax collector the children coming to Jesus, the young rich ruler. The bigger story is God's kingdom. That's the bigger point that Jesus is making. No one illustrates better that you cannot earn salvation than a baby. Think about it. Who has achieved less morally than a baby? Who's achieved less spiritually than a baby? Who has less law knowledge or less obedience to the law than a baby? Under the Pharisees' belief uh, of righteousness by works, there, there's no place for babies in that system. There's no place for the humble, for the meek, for the weak in that system. But Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So again, there, there's room for the weak. There's room for the poor, the humble, the merciful because of the cross, because of what Christ did. And then lastly, number three, we're told to receive the kingdom like a child. Now, there's a difference between childish and childlike. So what does it mean to be childlike? What, what can we as adults learn by looking at children? I just have a few examples. The first is this. Children are helpless. They're fully dependent on their parents. 
And a few years ago, there was this commercial I saw on TV, and I tried to look it up, and I could not find it. I have no clue what it was about. I don't know what product it was, but it, it's ingrained in my mind. It, it's this, this woman walks through the front door, and the camera's kind of focused on her. And she comes home, and she just looks exhausted. And she's talking to someone off camera, and she's coming in. She's like, listen, I had a really hard day at work. I had no sleep last night. I had to work overtime tonight. I'm exhausted. Could you cook dinner and maybe clean up so I can have a nice, relaxing night? And then the camera pans over to who she's talking to, and it's her baby. And the whole, the whole point of that commercial was, um, again, you can't rely, like, you as the parent, you need to do that work. The, the, it's not the baby's responsibility. Babies cannot cook dinner. Babies can't clean up after themselves. They can't feed themselves. So again, in my mind, that, that whole commercial was to the point of how helpless children are and how dependent they are on their parents. As Christians, we should be fully dependent on God, admitting our own helplessness and looking to our Heavenly Father for help in all aspects of our life. Don't be too proud to surrender your whole life to God. Don't be too proud to ask God for help. Again, God's not interested in the proud. He's interested in the humble, the meek, the weak. So again, children are helpless. Number two, children ask questions. Children ask questions. Have you ever been annoyed by the, the, just the sheer amount of questions that kids ask? I don't even have kids yet, and I can say yes. Uh, again, I, I worked at a summer camp, and 24-7 for like four weeks straight, I had eight-year-old kids, and I don't think I've ever been as like, mentally drained in my life than that time. Just the, the questions they ask. And they're not rude questions. They're just genuinely wanting to know the answer to their question. So I think for the most part, I'm not saying all the time, but for the most part, when, when kids ask questions, they're not asking for the sake of arguing. They're not asking for the sake of, of starting a debate. But they want to know the answer for the most part. Now, sometimes there might be other exceptions. But it, they also they listen closely to the answer. As Christians, we should be asking God questions. We should be praying to Him and listening for His response. As we wrestle spiritually, emotionally, physically with things, we should be crying out to God and drawing closer to Him through it. Ask God your questions. Be honest with God and listen for His response. A third example is children have hope. If you ask a child what they want to be when they grow up, it's usually the same few answers. Actor, dancer, musician, firefighter, cop, doctor. And I looked in my elementary yearbook from fifth grade, and that was, instead of a senior quote, they asked all the graduating fifth graders, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer, surprisingly enough, it wasn't youth, it wasn't youth pastor or youth minister or, or being in ministry. I wanted to be a professional hockey player. I wanted to be an NHL player. As you can see, I did not achieve that. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. You never hear a child say this. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? You never hear them say, you know, well, I want to be an actor when I grow up. But, you know, I don't, I don't really know anybody in the industry. I know my chances are really limited. So I think I'll, I'll settle for a more realistic or, a, or an obtainable job. Maybe I'll be like an accountant or uh, I'll, I'll major in business in college. No, children are full of hope. You know, if you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, you, you get these hopeful kind of dream job type of answers. 
Again, where is our hope? Do, do we have any hope? When we pray, do we fully hope and trust in God with our request? Or do we usually pray something like this? You know, please God, I, I just need your help doing this or that, but, but even if you don't do it, that's okay. I, I, I'll still believe in you. You know, the, the even if you don't. There's something so innocent and powerful when children pray. They're full of hope. They're fully believing that what they're asking God he can, he can um, answer. And they're not too ashamed to ask God for anything. There's no shame in asking God. So again, children are helpless. They ask questions. They have hope. And children love gifts. Children love gifts. Think about how children receive gifts. They receive them with joy. Or they'll tell you straight up honestly how they're feeling. Oh, I hate this. Or, oh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't like this. Or why'd you get me this? But most of the time, they're just happy to get something. I saw a video of parents rewrapping Christmas presents, or like they rewrapped their children's old toys as new Christmas presents, and children were like so happy that they got gifts to open up. Like it's just the mind of children. They love presents. And I actually didn't know that um, my, my niece was going to be here, so I have to confess something. So uh, when me and Stephanie went on vacation, I think it was a few months ago or maybe almost a year ago, we came back and, and my sister came over with the kids and, and Hannah asked, you know, Uncle David, what would you get me? And I was like, I didn't get her anything. <laughs> so, I, you know, frantically I looked around the house and uh, I, found, I found this. And what this is, it's, it's a rubber bracelet that says recharge. It's from an old youth group event. And I was like, here, I got you this. And she loved it. She received it with joy. Um, and I'm not, maybe this is not a great example because I, I kind of tricked her. Hannah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry I tricked you. But again, to receive gifts with joy. Children, for the most part, they, they love gifts. It, it shows that you thought about them, that what you're giving them, it's, it's theirs. My point also is, is children have no concept or value of cost. You know, rather, they delight in the thought of a gift. The, this, 10 cents. It's something that's for them. It's, it's theirs. So again, having childlike faith, it's, it's simple. We as, adult, we as adults, we, we tend to complicate things. When Paul tells us that salvation is a free gift, a gift, do you believe him or is it just too good to be true? Is it a free gift, but you have to, you know, be a good person? You've got to do other stuff. Or do we believe Paul when he says it's a free gift? You know, maybe you're thinking nothing can truly be free, can it? We as adults, we, we tend to complicate things. Simple faith does not mean that we believe everything we hear. It doesn't mean that, you know, if we hear something new, it's like, oh, wow, I believe that. Perfect. I don't need any sort of evidence or reasoning at all. But if you think about it, the gospel is simple. Boil the gospel down to the very simplistic nature of it. We are bad. God is holy. We cannot go before a holy, perfect God because of our sin. So something had to be done. Jesus paid the debt. He paid the price for our sin. We're covered by his blood, his righteousness, that we can have a relationship with God our Father. We need to trust in the finished work on the cross. Repent from our sins. You know, that's the gospel. It's not very complicated. Salvation's already been purchased through his death, through the resurrection of Jesus from the cross. It doesn't take a complicated faith to believe that. 
but rather a simple one. So again, looking at today's text, three things that we can just learn from these couple of short verses. One, we learn something about God's kingdom. Two, Jesus is, is squashing or destroying the, view, the Jewish view of salvation by, by being moral and being good and following the law. And number three, we're told to receive the kingdom like a child. And what I want to do, kind of last thoughts here, is I just want to challenge us and, and, and really have you evaluate your own life. Have you been coming before God like a child? You know, or, or do you need to work on being more childlike? Not childish, but childlike. Because according to Jesus, if we don't receive the kingdom like a child, we will never enter it. And that's important. That's something to meditate on this week. So let's pray. Dear Father, we just praise you, Lord, that uh, we can just come together on, on this morning and, and, and focus on you and, and look at your word. Uh, God, I pray that this week we can take some time to just evaluate our own faith, evaluate our own life. God, I pray that we can um, just come before you as your children, that we know that we're fully dependent on you, that we are helpless. God, I pray that we can just learn to be more childlike, not childish, but childlike when it comes to living for you. God, we love you and thank you for loving us so much that you sent us Jesus. Thank you that you gave us a way to you. We praise you this morning and Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for us that we can be saved and that we can enter your kingdom. So again, I just pray that we can take some time this week to just evaluate our faith, evaluate our life, and just come before you like children. We love you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. As we close our service, we're just going to sing, uh, or Stephanie and Gabby are going to lead us in one more song together.